it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. Welcome one and all to the Guy Benson Show. Glad you're listening. I'm your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com. Fox News contributor and host of this fine program every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com, our podcast, free of charge, on demand, every day. Here's our lineup coming up in our next hour. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich will be here. He's got a book out. I want to ask him about the midterm elections and maybe beyond as well. So Newt, just after 4.05 p.m. Eastern. Jessica Tarloff, our colleague at Fox News, co-host of The Five, before she gets ready for TV. She'll be here as well in our middle hour out of these three. And then Josh Krasauer in our final hour, breaking down some of the polling, looking at the political environment, and also a sea change in the coalitions of each major party in ways that were not predicted not that long ago by a lot of the analysts who do this for a living. The Democrats are looking a lot whiter and more educated than they have recently. And Republicans are making big inroads with not just working class people, but people of color as well. What does that mean for the future of American elections? We will ask Josh about that and a lot more. So that's all coming up. We begin today with a Fox News alert, and it is not good news for the U.S. economy. Via Fox Business, inflation accelerated more than expected to a new four-decade high in June as the price of everyday necessities remains painfully high, exacerbating a financial strain for millions of Americans and worsening a political crisis for President Joe Biden. And by the way, this is not the only one. Over the course of this hour, I want to talk about the economy, inflation, of course, front and center. I want to talk about crime, some shocking developments in major American cities. We'll get to that. And then the border crisis as well. There are multiple raging crises in this country underscoring the failures of this administration and progressive, quote-unquote, governance in general. But this is the top of the list. Everyone feels this. Everyone is hurt by inflation. And the Labor Department said today that the Consumer Price Index, a broad measure of the price of everyday goods, including gasoline, groceries, rent, etc., rose 9.1% in June over a year ago. 9.1%. Prices jumped 1.3% in the one-month period from May, up more than a point in just a month. It's 9.1% year over year. It's up 1.3% from May. Those figures were both far higher than the headline figure that were expected, the figures that were expected on those two numbers by economists. So once again, unexpected bad news, or I guess the way to put it in this context is worse than expected bad news for the U.S. economy. 
It is the fastest pace of inflation since December of 1981, which is before years before yours truly was even born. So that's where things stand. We got an inkling yesterday. I mentioned it on the show. We got an inkling that it was going to be really bad because Brian Dees over at the White House, one of their spinmeisters who they trot out for the Sunday morning shows to try to put a happy face on deeply unhappy news. He was pre-spinning this report on his Twitter feed saying, oh, well, the context is important and the gas prices have come down a little bit and that's not going to be reflected in the June numbers. So, look, they can talk to their blue in the face. It is what it is. We're all experiencing it. And by the way, their, their spin, what they're trying to say here is the good news, the glimmer here is gas prices, which are still on average, what, 470-something a gallon? Historically high? In my neck of the woods here the last couple of weeks, I've not seen anything below the high fours, and a lot of the times the cheapest unleaded is over $5 a gallon. Five bucks a gallon here. And then it's even worse in other parts of the country. In California, we know, is usually the very worst in the country. That's the average approaching 480 a gallon. It's not affordable by any definition. But they're pointing to that as if it's some kind of mitigating circumstance that makes the numbers overall on inflation a little bit less bad. I mean, good luck with that, honestly. It's absolutely not going to work. In fact, I think it is more likely to offend and insult people. Because I understand if you're in politics and you've got a job to do and things are very bad and you're in charge, you don't want to really own up to it. You don't want to be blamed for it. There's an election looming in a couple of months. But to try to tell people that things really aren't as bad as they are, and they're certainly not your fault, and hey, at least there's this less horrible thing over here, I think it is so deeply divorced from the experiences of Americans all across this country that it is doing active harm. I think it's going to anger people further. I saw there was one reporter from Axios, their chief economic correspondent, who said this, quote, I don't know who needs to hear this. This is on Twitter. I don't know who needs to hear this, but with core inflation running at a 7.9% annual rate over the last three months, it doesn't bring too much comfort to note that gas prices are falling right now. He says, I don't know who needs to hear this. Well, here's someone who does. Mula Harris Our vice president came out today. Here's the headline from Mediaite. Harris explains that 40-year record inflation numbers don't reflect recent 40-cent drop in gas prices. So Neil Irwin, the Axios reporter, is just putting this out there almost like a public service announcement to anyone who might need to hear that this excuse or this sort of, you know, mitigation, silver lining that they're trying to hype. Like, I don't know who needs to hear this, but it's not really a good talking point at all. Because core inflation, which does not include gas prices, that is out of the picture. Core inflation, which is another measure, is also up and elevated at historic levels. Rents are up. We can go through the list, and I will here in a second, but I guess that's the decision that has been made at the White House. 
you would say any port in a storm, but this isn't even a port. Being like, hey, look, gas, gas prices are only four seventy-five a gallon on average. That's not somewhere where you want to show up and hang your hat in the middle of an otherwise horrible news cycle about a horrible problem that's punishing the American people from coast to coast. So when Irwin says, I don't know who needs to hear this, the White House needs to hear it. The vice president needs to hear it. The president, his advisors need to hear it. They don't want to hear it. But that's tough luck for them. Let's go through a few more of these numbers. And I would point out, as the Fox Business write-up indicated, the projections were bad, right? The expectation from economists and and experts was increase around 8.8% or 8.9%. It was worse. It was 9.1%, worse than every major estimate available. Heather Long at the Washington Post says, not good. Inflation rose 1.3% in June alone, the biggest monthly gain of the pandemic. This is the biggest month-to-month hike in this inflationary period. She says, yes, gas accounted for 50% of that increase, but food saw its sixth consecutive increase of 1% or more in a single month. And rent continues to climb. Joel Griffith points out, as inflation hits 9.1%, the average weekly earnings decreased 1% in June. And hours worked dropped 0.9%. Real wages are down 3.6% in the last year. Many Americans are earning less, finding less full-time work, and paying more. Paying more for basically everything. So earnings down, hours down, real wages down. And what was the White House saying as recently as last week? That the economy is historically good, better than it's been through history or whatever the crazy talking point was? Does any of that make sense? Earnings down, hours down, wages down. The American people are poorer. They are poorer by almost every metric, every measure under the Biden administration and unified Democratic governance. And not all of it is their fault. I've been honest about this. There are other outside factors that are beyond any administration or president's control. That is true. But they are doing the blame game thing, saying, basically, don't blame us. None of this is our fault. And people aren't buying that either. And they shouldn't. Because they came into office, this crew, and they said, let's spend trillions in additional new dollars. So they did two trillion new dollars. All the Democrats voted for that. They almost voted for $5 trillion more on top of that. Could be even worse. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema held the line and saved the country from a lot more pain. But all the other Democrats were for it. 99% of Democrats in Washington, D.C. favored Build Back Better nearly $5 trillion. An inflation grenade with the House already on fire. 99% of them. Changes need to be made urgently, and there's an election coming. Groceries, getting back to the numbers today, up 12% in the past year, the biggest annual increase since 1979. Since Carter, the cost of chicken, for example, up 19% in the past year. It's the biggest increase ever. 
Gas up 60%, the biggest increase since the early 80s. Electricity up 14%, biggest increase since 06. Rent up 5.8%, the biggest increase since 1986. Those numbers also from Heather Long of the Washington Post. And I just want to remind you that the people in charge, this administration, the Democrats, downplayed this concern, downplayed the threat of inflation over and over again for basically an entire year. No, no, all of our wasteful spending on so-called COVID relief or whatever, no, that's going to have no impact on inflation, maybe a little blip, no big deal, don't you worry, don't listen to these liars. Here's just a little montage that the Republican Party put together that I think is pretty devastating. This was throughout 2021, cut 18. I really doubt that we're going to see an inflationary cycle. Most economic analysts have believed that it will have a temporary or transitory impact. The faster than expected increase in some of those prices is actually a good sign. The overwhelming consensus is going to pop up a little bit and then go back down. No one's talking about this great, great deal. This is something that will uh, settle down. Transitory. (laughs) Transitory. And the data shows that most of the price increases we've seen were expected and and expected to be temporary. There's nobody suggesting there's unchecked inflation on the way. It's highly unlikely that it's going to be long-term inflation that's going to get out of hand. I don't know anybody who's worried about inflation. Over the last couple of months, uh, we actually saw it trended downward. President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, enthusiastically retweeted an economist who had said in part most of the economic problems we're facing, inflation, supply chains, etc., are high-class problems. What is the grand home plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, hilarious. High-class problem. No one expects inflation to be a real issue. Just calm down, everyone. So that's the beginning of this montage from the RNC. And then, late last year, see if you can notice the pivot to blame from don't worry, not a problem, to "Uh uh-oh, there's a problem, but don't point the finger at us. No, no, it's everything and everyone else. Cut 19. Well, the number one thing that the president can do is help get COVID under control. Uh, That, we know, is the root cause of inflation. President Biden this afternoon saying he thinks we're at the peak of the crisis right now and that lower prices are on the way. The inflation has everything to do with the supply chain. Make no mistake, inflation is largely the fault of Putin. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. If you want to get rid of inflation, the only way to do it is to um, undo a lot of the Trump tax cuts. Ever since you've come into office, things are really looking up. You know, gas is up, rent is up, food is up, everything. I love that Schumer clip in there. I'd forgotten about that. The only way to lick inflation is to raise taxes on the American people. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like, it's not bad enough. Let's just raise your taxes, too. In that latter part, you may have heard that Biden had said that he believed that the worst was over and that inflation was going to start getting reversed and prices coming down. You know when that was? That was around December 2021. He made that prediction. How's that looking? How are you feeling? Don't worry about it. Transitory, not a big deal, to not our fault and Putin. And if you look at the graph, inflation started to come up shortly after Biden was inaugurated, and they spent trillions of dollars, and it went up, 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 up. Then the invasion 
of Ukraine happened, and it kept going up. And he says, that's Putin. No one believes these excuses. And that's why they're in so much trouble, and they should be. I want to also highlight one particularly dishonest thing. In retrospect, that looks terrible for Biden. We will focus on that as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I don't know anybody, including Larry Summers, who's a friend of mine, who's worried about inflation. I'm Guy Benson. That was Joe Biden. Almost exactly one year ago, July 2021, I don't know anybody, including Larry Summers, my friend, who is worried about inflation. Well, wrong. There were conservative economists worried about inflation, warning against the $2 trillion wasteful spending bill that the Democrats passed along party lines. Republicans, of course, were warning of inflation as well, as they voted no. And Larry Summers... The man cited by Biden there, who's the former Treasury Secretary under Obama, he was also worried about it at the time. That clip, as I said, was from July of 2021. Here's a news item from The Hill in March of 2021, months earlier. Larry Summers, top economic advisor to former President Obama, blasted the $1.9 trillion coronavirus stimulus package signed by President Biden earlier this month as, quote, the least responsible economic policy in 40 years. Summers warned that the risk of inflation associated with the proposal could have consequences for the dollar and financial stability. The Biden administration has pushed back against inflation fears. That was March of 2021. Summers saying this bill is so irresponsible, it's the worst thing I've seen in 40 years because of inflation. And the Biden people said, no, no, hush up, pat on the head, move along, little Larry. We don't care. And then by July of last year, Biden saying, I don't know anyone who's concerned about inflation. Don't you worry, America. That was on CNN, a town hall meeting. And here we are a year after that. 9.1% inflation in this country, and Joe Biden wants to make sure that you know that it's everyone else's fault except for him. By the way, Summers thinks there's a recession coming. Biden says no, not necessarily. Who are you going to believe on that one? It's the Guy Benson Show. We're changing people's lives. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home here at the program. Podcast is free every day. And I'm Guy Benson. Before I move on to another very important topic, we were just talking about inflation. The number one story in the country, as it has been now for months. The totally misleading statements for about a year from the brain trust over there at the White House. 
shifting from don't worry to don't blame us. And they've got nowhere to hide. And just the feeble, pitiful talking points that they're leaning on now, it's you almost feel bad for them, but they are responsible. And they are in charge. And we were ticking through some of the numbers, you know, groceries up, X amount, gas, electricity, rent. I did have to wonder, do we have that metric on the increase of price of breakfast tacos? Let's talk about crime. This story is really something. And it doesn't necessarily come as a surprise because we've seen similar things happening in some of these places now for a while. On this program, for example, we have mentioned a number of these drug stores, the big chain stores like Walgreens or CVS, just closing up some of their locations. And we had some businesses put out of business from riots back in 2020, the riots that were sort of indulged or excused or waved away by Democrats. Joe Biden was open to redirecting police funding, which is a form of defunding the police. That was what he said on the campaign trail. Kamala Harris was urging people to donate to a bail fund in Minneapolis to bail rioters out of jail. Some of those businesses that were raised to the ground never came back in that city and other places around the country. Just dreams were crushed in, quote-unquote, mostly peaceful protests. And then the crime that has been running rampant has continued apace. We've seen gun violence and murders and those stats, but we've also seen, you know, petty crime and looting. It's been disturbing. It's been very disturbing. And there were some locations, right, where you have laws, for example, in parts of California where it's like, okay, you can shoplift up to this amount, and it's not going to be a serious crime, and we're not going to really probably respond to these types of crimes. And so you had just places getting ransacked, these amazing, just shocking videos of people coming in with, like, huge garbage bags, just filling up whatever they want, A bunch of stuff just sort of like scraping it off the shelves with their arm into this bag and then walking out in broad daylight. Totally brazen. The police unlikely to respond. The prosecutors not going to prosecute. The security guards brought in, trained not to do anything. And then some of those locations just saying, okay, uh, we're closing. Walgreens saying, we just can't have our stuff stolen constantly. It's unsustainable. This location in San Francisco is gone, right? That's been a pattern as well. Sorry, people who work at the Walgreens who rely on that paycheck. Sorry, senior citizen two blocks away where that's your drugstore where you get your prescription and you don't have a car to go further afield to go get your pills somewhere else. Too bad. The criminals sort of just running the show and the people in charge, so to speak, letting them do it because of compassion and equity and progress, right? This is what's been happening. There was a story I just saw this week about 7-Elevens starting to close down in some locations, again, because of crime. This was the headline at National Review, 7-Eleven encourages Los Angeles franchises to close amid string of armed robberies and murders. And then there's this. 
Starbucks, the huge, ubiquitous coffee chain, you're all familiar, that little logo, the green color, they are closing 16 locations around the country. 16 places just boarded up, not serving coffee anymore. They've just made this announcement. Now, this is a very progressive company. They like to weigh in on some social issues. They've actually sort of been a part of a lot of the coddling of criminals. And it is not a conservative company. But it's a popular one. People like their coffee. And some of their busiest locations will now cease to operate, cease to exist. And here's why. The company putting out a statement Quote, after careful consideration, we are closing some stores and locations that have experienced a high volume of challenging incidents that make it unsafe to continue to operate. They're going to try to find some new locations that are safer. That's an interesting way of euphemizing, isn't it? A high volume of challenging incidents that make it unsafe to continue to operate. In other words... Crime and drug use associated with, among other things, homelessness and weak on crime or even pro-crime policies in some of these locations. Now, let me read to you the list of the 16 places where the locations are closing. Ready? And I can't quite put my finger on what they all have in common. Maybe you can help me with that. Listen to these places and see if you can find a common thread. Hmm. West Hollywood, California. Los Angeles, California. Los Angeles, California. Hollywood, California. Santa Monica, California. Los Angeles, California. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Seattle, Washington, Seattle, Washington, Seattle, Washington, Seattle, Washington, Everett, Washington, and Washington, D.C. There's your list. You know the old Sesame Street song? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Well, in this case, there's not even one exception. All of these things are just like the other. All of these things exactly belong in the same category. Left-wing blue cities. That's it. In left-wing blue, uh, blue places. They're not closing down in Toledo. Right? They're not closing down in some rural city in Texas. It's California. Oregon, Washington, and then D.C. and Philly. For now. Imagine having to close stores because the crime incidents are so frequent that you can't actually operate anymore because your workers and customers are in physical danger. We talked about inflation for the first half hour of this show, as we should. It is crushing the country. And a significant portion of that is a direct result 
of the terrible policies and insane, reckless spending and, you know, head in the sand denialism of Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and that whole crew. And 99 percent of Democrats in Washington have voted for all of it. That's one crisis. The crime crisis is another one. And I love how, you know, Gavin Newsom's out there trolling saying, well, look at these red state cities that have really bad crime. Yeah, they're big cities controlled by, I don't want you to guess which party, Gavin. I don't want to ruin your little story. He's trying to say, ignore the fact that these localities are run by Democrats and have been for decades. Let's talk about the fact that those cities, some of them, happen to be in red states with Republican governors. So he doesn't want to talk about Joe Biden. And the message coming from the very top where Joe Biden's like, oh, yeah, we're pro-police now. We're fund the police. Let's increase funding. Don't let anyone lie to you that we're defund the police. Then, of course, when he's running for president, he's saying, oh, sure, let's redirect funds away from the police. Kamala, oh, yeah, please send some money to bail rioters out of jail. They're trying to pretend like none of that ever happened. They want you to forget about that. And someone like Gavin Newsom, and I might have some more to say about him tomorrow governor of california he's trying to pretend like okay at the top the democrat-run country right the federal level the dems control everything house senate white house don't blame them don't blame the democrats who run the cities where the crime is rampant but where applicable blame the governors who are republicans in some cases i mean it's just it makes no sense Every single Starbucks location that I just listed off that's closing, all of them are in not just like sort of Democratic cities, the deepest blue parts of the country where they feel like they're just oh so compassionate and they're so forward looking and they're so erudite and their hearts are so filled with a sense of self-righteousness, and they know what's better, and they're certainly better than any of the knuckle-draggers in the middle of the country. God, those people are disgusting. And we know how to do things. And they've been so good at electing the right type of people and enacting the wonderful, enlightened types of policies that the most popular coffee chain in the country, where people are literally addicted to the product, cannot operate because of too much crime. It's just too violent to sell coffee. And every single one of these places are like, you know, Joe Biden, 80 plus percent cities. Now, the one that I want to focus on a little bit, maybe this is just me being biased because I live in the D.C. area. Maybe this is a little bit parochial of me. But I pass through Union Station in Washington, D.C. every single time I go to New York and then return home. I spend a lot of time at Union Station in Washington, D.C. That is where they are closing this Starbucks in D.C. I've been to that Starbucks. I'm not really a coffee drinker, but sometimes I've got an early morning train, and I know I've got to work on the train on my way up, and then I've got TV. I need some caffeine, so I'll go and bite the bullet and you know give me a double shot of whatever. And then I'll get on the train and get to work. So I have patronized this exact Starbucks countless times. And there's always a line. It is a successful location in terms of demand. I don't know their exact sales number, but there's always someone there buying coffee. The Starbucks at the 
number one rail hub in the capital of the United States of America. It is literally steps from the U.S. Capitol. You walk out the door at Union Station, and straight ahead is the rotunda, the dome. It's right there. It's also steps away from Fox News, where we do our show from, from the Bureau. It's in the heart of Washington, D.C. And it has gotten so dangerous and crime-riddled at Union Station in Washington that they're boarding up the Starbucks and you can't buy a cup of Starbucks coffee before you get on the train out of the nation's capital due to crime, due to violent incidents, drug use, etc. Or as the company would say, quote, a high volume of challenging incidents that make it unsafe to continue to operate. It is shocking. It should be. It should be shocking that Starbucks cannot sell coffee at Union Station in our nation's capital because it's too unsafe to do so. But hey, if you're a bodega owner in New York City or a bodega, what is she, bogada? Did the first lady call it, I think? If you're a bodega owner in New York City or someone who's operating the bodega, and you are being violently attacked and stabbed by criminals, and you defend yourself by stabbing one of the assailants to death to save your own life up in New York City, just a short little train ride away from Union Station, you will be thrown in jail and charged with murder, because that's a thing that happened. Too dangerous to buy coffee at Union Station in D.C., but if you defend yourself from the thugs trying to rob and possibly kill you while they're stabbing you in New York City, you're the criminal. Now, I think they're eventually going to bow to reality and pressure because it's a very clear-cut case up there in New York City of self-defense. But it is just mind-blowing to me that in a city where there's just this, you know, revolving door where you commit a crime, you show up, you get booked, and then released on your own recognizance. And this just happens over and over and over again. And you find out people who are getting eventually charged with murder had, you know, 19 previous arrests or whatever it's been. Alvin Bragg, the DA, also all very progressive. These bail laws, all of that stuff. You've got career criminals just released constantly, but an actual honest taxpayer and, you know, taxpaying citizen just trying to do his job and not die because he's getting stabbed by criminals trying to rob him. He fights back and kills one of them. He gets thrown into Rikers, and he gets charged with murder. If it feels like this is psychotic, it's because this is psychotic. And you can't say every single thing that's happening in the country can be laid at the feet of Joe Biden or any president. I think that's, you know, reductive and very simplistic. But look who is in charge of these places where the crime that I just listed off is especially bad. Look at the people in charge of Washington, D.C. Look at these various crises all happening at the same time. And you have to wonder, are we on the right track as a country? 77% of us say no, according to the New York Times poll. It's not hard to see why. 
And it's not hard to see who's running the show right now. Time for a change, maybe? Oh, and there's another crisis that I'll tell you about next. The border crisis. New details on that when we return. Guy Benson will be right back. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. You talked about the inflation crisis, the crime crisis. How about the border crisis, the immigration crisis that so many in the press want to ignore? Our colleague Bill Malugin doesn't ignore it. He covers it every day. He posted a video on his Twitter feed. You can go find it. This was this morning. It's about a minute long, the video. It's taken from a distance. He says, one of the most massive single groups we have ever witnessed crossing illegally at the border, crossing into Eagle Pass, Texas, right now. The line of people went so far into the trees, it's hard to get a count. Hundreds upon hundreds with coyotes guiding them in the waters. These are the human traffickers working for the cartels who are making $100 million a week off of this. Hundreds upon hundreds all at one time. And you watch this video and you cannot be numb to this. This is a crisis. This is an outrage. It's just mass lawlessness that has been specifically incentivized by this administration. We're going to get the June numbers out, not just on inflation, but on immigration as well at the border. They're going to be extremely bad, as they were in May, another shattered record. Malugin also reporting on multiple convicted criminals who have been apprehended at the border. Child molesters, someone convicted of homicide, sexual abuse, indecency with a six-year-old. And those are only the people getting caught, not the tens of thousands of gotaways. Another crisis on our hands that can be left at the feet of this administration and so-called progressivism. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A fresh hour of the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. every weekday, right here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free of charge every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. Thank you for listening. Fox News alert. The Dow down again today, 209 points. Not exactly a great day economically with that CPI report that we really broke down extensively in the first hour. Inflation running rampant and the market sinking. So the Dow down 209, closing out today at 30,771. Joining us now is former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, a best-selling author who's out with a new book called Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future. And Mr. Speaker, it's good to have you back on the show. Well, it's always great to be with you and uh, you're right. When you have a day where they announce 9.1% inflation, uh, you have to conclude that uh, that's not very good economic news, and it's very painful news uh, for most American families. Yep. And then I think the next shoe to drop could be 
a recession. It seems like the experts are starting to kind of warn us that is more likely than not. The Biden people are downplaying that, but they, of course, downplayed inflation as well. So their credibility is is sort of shot on some of these issues, Mr. Speaker. And a lot of this can be sort of traced back to some of the big government policies that you've written about in the book. Just give our audience an overview, a little preview of defeating big government socialism. Well, my concern was that we would win an election just based on performance because they're doing so badly, but that we would not drive home the argument that, in fact, the reason their performance is so bad is their policies, their ideas, and their philosophy are so destructive. Uh, The fact is the stuff they believe in does not work. Uh, Ronald Reagan once said that uh, what, he wasn't frightened of what liberals did not know. He was frightened of what they knew that just wasn't true. And I think, uh, you know, we, we saw Jimmy Carter bring massive inflation. Here we are back at the same stand with Joe Biden bringing massive inflation. We've seen Democratic policies that are anti-oil and anti-gas. Uh, that was true under Carter. Or it's true under Obama. It's true under Biden. Well, guess what? Uh, you know, an American president who favors uh, Venezuela over Texas, Saudi Arabia over North Dakota, and Iran over Pennsylvania as sources of energy. I mean, you have to wonder where their heads are at or what planet they're on, and yet that's exactly the kind of thing we're getting. So my point in writing Defeating Big Government Socialism was to make the case that, that we who believe in America and in America's future, we have to win the argument that these people aren't just incompetent, what they believe cannot possibly work. And we have real proof uh, that it can be done because in 1975, Prime Minister, then opposition leader, Margaret Thatcher, uh, set out to destroy socialism as an acceptable alternative. And she was so successful at winning the argument that uh, for the last 40 years, uh, no left-wing leader of the Labor Party has been elected prime minister, not one, because it became unacceptable. And I think we have an opportunity to take the failures of the Democratic Congress and the Democratic president and drive home that that these are fundamental failures of values, of philosophy, and of belief, and that anybody who shares these should not be allowed in power. And if we win the argument correctly, then we're certainly going to have enough pain Uh, to have people paying attention, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that this could last for several generations. Well, and that's a really interesting point that actually segues perfectly into my next question. I wanted to ask about the midterm elections upcoming, and you just alluded to this. The Republicans really could just kind of float along and win it by default because the failures are so bad and people are so unhappy. You know, maybe they would not win as many seats as they possibly could by maximizing the message and all of that. But if they did virtually nothing, I think they would win the midterm elections one way or another. Maybe they wouldn't you know, win the Senate, but they'd win the House. When you spearheaded a big midterm red wave in 1994, the Republican Party was running proactively on an agenda. Right? You had a contract for the American people saying, this is what we believe. This is what we would do. You brought that case to the public, and it was a huge historic sweeping win in the first midterm election of President Clinton. That's not really what we're seeing from the Republicans right now. We're seeing we don't like what's happening, and we're going to put a stop to it, and we'll bring some accountability. 
Is that enough? What's your read on what the Republicans are and are not doing? Are they playing it smart? I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Well, I know that on the House side, Kevin McCarthy has organized a very elaborate effort with seven different working groups, and they fully intend by September to have a very positive program uh, that is that he would probably call a commitment to America, where we call it a contract. And I know in the Senate side, uh, there's been increasing sympathy <laughs> towards doing something like that. And I think it's very important. I mean, uh, when we did the contract with America, we were really standing on Ronald Reagan's shoulders because in 1980, Reagan had run on what he himself had called a contract. And uh, the first Capitol Steps event to bring together all the Republicans running for federal office occurred with Reagan in 1980, not with us in 1994. And, uh, you know, as a result, we won control of the Senate for the first time since 1954. So I, I really I believe there are a lot of profound reasons to tell people in advance what you're going to do. And I think part of it comes from uh, Lincoln's you know, statement that we're for government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, that means you ought to tell the people what you're going to do, and then you ought to keep your word and actually do what you promised. Mr. Speaker, I also want to ask you about a rumor that's percolating involving not the 22 election necessarily, but the 24 election already looking ahead that former President Donald Trump might want to announce that he's running again before the midterms even. And so they're sort of separating it out into two questions. Should he run again? Should Republicans want him to be the torchbearer in 2024? Question one. Question two, is it helpful to anyone, including him, to announce before the midterms if that is his intention to run? What do you make of that? Well, let me work backwards. I think it would be a mistake to announce before the election. I think the focus of this election should be on the absolute total failure of the Democrats and of big government socialism. And nothing Republicans should do uh, should take people's attention away from that failure. And I think the minute that uh, Trump were to announce, you would just be in all sorts of news stories that would not help elect Republicans. It would take, it would take the heat off the Democrats and give the news media an excuse uh, to try to maximize Republican dissent and, you know, Republican confusion. Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, President Trump won the second largest number of votes ever won by anybody. And that's that's if you give Biden the benefit of the doubt about a lot of dubious votes. So here's a guy who's gotten 73 or 75 million votes. He has every right to run again. And if you look at the impact of his three Supreme Court justices, if you look at the inflation rate the day he left office, look at the price of gasoline the day he left office, look how well controlled the border was the day he left office. I mean, he he can make a pretty good historic case that that the Trump years were so dramatically better than the Biden years that, uh, in fact, he, he should be reelected. And, and of course, all of this is occurring in a world where the news media is fanatically hostile. Um, you know, the New York Times essentially is Pravda, and the Washington Post is essentially is Vestia. I mean, these aren't newspapers. These are anti-Trump organs of propaganda, and they spend time every day attacking him. Uh, and 
I think that it's important to recognize that he, he has survived despite the most aggressive and methodical assault of any modern presidential candidate. I really doubt that we're going to see an inflationary cycle. Most economic analysts believe that it will have a temporary or transitory impact. The faster-than-expected increase in some of those prices is actually a good sign. The overwhelming consensus is going to pop up a little bit and then go back down. No one's talking about this great, great deal. This is something that will uh, settle down. Transitory. <laughs> Transitory. And the data shows that most of the price increases we've seen are were expected and are expected to be temporary. There's nobody suggesting there's unchecked inflation on the way. It's un- highly unlikely that it's going to be long-term inflation okay. that's going to get out of hand. So we just had a bit of an issue there with my feed, but we are now back with Speaker Newt Gingrich. And, Mr. Speaker, you were talking about President Trump, and you said he has a right to run. You were going through some of his record there. I just want to ask you, and not necessarily in the 2024 context, and I'm not asking you to you know, pit one against the other or make any sort of endorsement. It's, all of this is extremely early. But there's a huge amount of buzz, as you know, around the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Whether he runs for president or not, he's got a crucial reelection down there in Florida coming up in a few months. As you assess the job that he has done in that state, and also he tangles regularly with the national media, they seem to have their knives out for him. What, in your estimation, is Ron DeSantis? What does he bring to the table? What are your thoughts on him as you size him up politically? Oh, I, I think that he's very much in the Trump tradition, and I think that uh, he's, he's a solid cultural and economic and national security conservative. He's a very attractive governor. Uh, I, I can tell you we, we have uh, bought a place in Florida, and uh, we are just very impressed with the job uh, the Governor DeSantis is doing, uh, and 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 certainly, if he decides to run, it would almost automatically be a, a Trump DeSantis race, uh, with maybe Mike Pence in in a, in a distant third position, and then everybody else. I mean, you know, remember we're we're talking about a race. If we had had this conversation in 2014, no one. I mean, no one would have suggested <laughs> yes. that Donald Trump was going to be the next president. Uh, you'd have been laughed off the air if you had said, oh, I've, I've looked ahead and I've analyzed it, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be Donald Trump. People have thought <laughs> you were nuts. True. So I, I, don't, I don't think you, you can just jump in. Uh, and, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that, for example, given how bad the Democrats are right now, I think of Tom Cruise coming off of uh, Top Gun Maverick, which has been, I think, half the ticket sales this summer are that one movie. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise could run. I mean, this is a wide open country. If if Donald <laughs> Trump as a real estate developer can run, then, you know, a guy who is an extraordinarily successful movie star can run. Or, you know, who knows? Yep, uh, no, it is, of course, way, way too early. And that's why I asked the question the way that I did. But I think a lot of Florida residents share your view of DeSantis, and we'll see what happens on the 2024 front as the months unfold here. 
Former Speaker Newt Gingrich on The Guy Benson Show. His new book is Defeating Big Government Socialism. Mr. Speaker, thank you. Glad to be with you. Thank you. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. I don't know if you saw this story. LeBron James, the NBA superstar, was on a show called The Shop on HBO where he sits around and shoots the breeze with various people. And the topic of Brittany Griner came up. She is the American female basketball player imprisoned in Russia. And a lot of Americans are demanding that she be brought home. So she's still in prison over there. She's behind bars. And she has been for quite a long time. And LeBron James, in a clip from the show, said this, cut 23. Brittany Griner, she is in Russia. She's been there over 110 days. Now, how can she feel like America has her back? I would be feeling like, do I even want to go back to America? Do I even want to go back to America? Asks LeBron. And I think a lot of people were very upset with that clip. And it's just a snippet. Maybe we'll get more context. But that was out there for public consumption. And it did not sit well with very many Americans. Here you have a U.S. citizen who is stuck in jail in an authoritarian state, a state that's waging war on one of its neighbors, committing war crimes, I would say unjustifiably imprisoning Brittany Griner. And LeBron James is sitting around musing that maybe she might not want to come back to this country. Yes, this very awful country that has done nothing but shower him with fame and fortune for virtually his entire adult life. A country, by the way, where he can be one of the most famous, powerful, rich people, not just within our borders, but all around the world, because of the opportunities given to him in this country, but where he also has the right to say really stupid things which he does from time to time. He has every right as an American to be an ingrate, an outspoken ingrate, which is how he comes across sometimes. He gets overheated. He does certain things. You might remember this when there was a completely justified police shooting. He got caught up in the moment and put a photo out of the cop, cop who had done absolutely nothing wrong but suggesting that this was unjustified, put that image out to millions of people, and then oops, deleted it. Seems like he's got an oops moment on this one as well because he's now clarified. He says, my comments on the shop regarding Brittany Griner wasn't knocking our beautiful country. Oh. It was simply saying how she's probably feeling emotionally along with so many other emotions, thoughts, etc. inside that cage she's been in for over 100 plus days. Long story short, hashtag bring her home. But what he said, at least in that quick clip, was he's not sure she would want to come back here. Now he wants us to all know, oh no, that was not a knock on our beautiful country. Hmm, really? That's how it could very easily be interpreted. I'll repeat, I'm willing to give anyone the benefit of the doubt. It was, what, a four-second clip or something like that? Maybe there is more context and a more thoughtful discussion around it where it's clear that that was not his intent. But as someone who is often hypercritical of this country, 
hyper-political and understanding sort of the zeitgeist on the left right now about what a rotten place this is, as so many of them decided to force-feed into our social media feeds over July 4th, for example. I think the idea of like, oh, this maybe isn't such a great place. Maybe that person who's rotting in jail in Russia, maybe she doesn't want to come back here after all. That's not an unreasonable interpretation to draw from what LeBron said. So, again, we'll reserve judgment until perhaps more fulsome context is available. But I'm also not taking the excuse at face value either, given his track record. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this short break. Jessica Tarloff coming up. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the show and halfway through the week here on the broadcast, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. With us is Jesse Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five. She's getting ready for that this evening. Also head of research at Bustle. She is also the chief romance and baby correspondent here at the Guy Benson Show. And, Jesse, it's been a few weeks, so welcome back. Great to talk to you. Thank you. You, too. I've seen you on air being fantastic on the special report panel, but I know you were also away. That is very kind. Yes, I was on vacation last week, and it was very nice, but it's good to get back in the swing of things, and there's so much to talk about. And I do want to start with you, Jesse, on a topic that is very unpleasant, profoundly unpleasant, but something that I think we need to talk about anyway, which is – the video being released from the hallway at that elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, it took me a while to bring myself to just click play and watch it, even with the foreknowledge that there was no blood in the video. They said that they had edited out the screams of the children, which is just a chilling thing to think about. So it was not going to be graphic, and yet it was going to be excruciating. I knew this because of everything that I'd read about What happened that day and the long delay between the shooter arriving at the school and the police finally breaching that classroom and just a a massive public outcry about the more than one hour of dithering. I have to say that when I finally did watch it, intellectually, I knew exactly more or less what I was going to see. And yet viscerally, it was still enraging. I, I was just seeing red i was so angry to watch these officers do nothing for as long as they did even with some gunshots going off in the classroom they stood around people checking their phones i know that there was i guess the officer in charge effectively telling people to stand down not to do anything and that's just me as someone watching from halfway across the country who's been horrified by the whole thing i can only imagine how some of these parents must feel when they see that footage. I know some of them are upset, and there are some officials in the town saying they were going to release some of the footage to families first, and then it came out in the press earlier, and there's sort of a little controversy around that. But the actual scandal is what the video shows, in my mind, and I don't think that's really a partisan issue in any way. No, it hasn't been. I, I mean, I none of us welcome these moments, but it feels better, right, as Americans when there is joint outcry and sorrow and sadness 
over something um, and we don't have to fight about it at all, right? That we know that everyone that we are in the company of feels exactly the same way about what happened. And that's absolutely the case um, of the shooting at Robb Elementary. Um, I share your sentiments about the video, uh, the cop who disinfected his hands. Uh, I just, I, I don't know how anyone could have been thinking about anything else. And especially that we were watching it with the sound off, essentially. So they were hearing the screams. They were hearing the shots. And you can't help but think that they knew exactly what was going on and were willfully negligent, right? I understand your commanding officer tells you to stand down. I think that this is a moment where you breach protocol, right? I'm not a police officer. I do not work in that kind of organization, but I do not think that the majority of people on this earth would have taken that command. Well, you're you're hearing you're hearing children being murdered. There are 911 calls coming in that prove amid this long delay that there were people still alive in that classroom. And you know that there are people on the ground bleeding. That just stands to reason. And you don't actually go in even when you're completely outgunning the shooter, when you've got a whole group of trained officers with powerful weapons and shields and tactical shields and all that stuff. And it takes well over an hour to do anything. It's just mind-boggling. While meanwhile, outside, you are physically restraining parents who want to go in to try to do something. You're like zip-tying and pepper-spraying them. It's just a debacle. And it's disgusting. And I understand why some of the local officials might want to be punting this into why did the media release this edited footage before the parents saw it or whatever. I'm not saying that's not something of a concern or, uh, you know, a local issue on the timing there. But, again, the actual substance here is what could have been done to prevent at least some of the loss of life. And I've read quotes from some of these parents who are just beside themselves. And I don't know how that community can heal. I don't know how, for example, the chief of the district police department, who just recently resigned the new city council seat that he had won, I just don't know how someone can remain in that community in any sort of position of authority or otherwise, given everything that we've learned. No, I don't think that person can be a neighbor. And this is a tiny community. What was it, 15,000, 16,000 people in total, um, where people were coming to the school because something was going on because they could hear it from their home. Right? I mean, this is not, this is small, small, small town America. Um, and I thought that that was um, one of the points, actually, that Matthew McConaughey, when he went to the White House, was able to make. Um, very poignantly, um, and it really stuck with me, that we're not talking about a travesty that's going on in a major metropole, right? Like, you know, something can happen in New York City, and I won't know anything about it in La- in a Los Angeles, in a Miami, even in D.C., but this is uh, the hub, the centerpiece now of the spirit of that community, right? This will be their forever story, like Sandy Hook is for, the, for that community um, in Newtown. Um, even though Newtown is exponentially bigger, even than Uvalde. I, I just, I don't know. And as a new parent, I, I don't know how you go on. I, I yeah. feel like I would in, I would instantly die. 
of grief, of sorrow, um, like the teacher's husband, right? One of the teachers who was murdered, that her husband just had a heart attack, you know, just died of a broken heart. Um, after yeah, leaving kids behind. Life. It's just tragedy compounding tragedy. And the incident itself was grotesque and deeply, deeply sad. And then the police response or lack thereof just adds another layer of trauma on top of everything. And I think many people around the country are just looking on with their jaws, or I should say our jaws, on the floor. You watch that video, if you can bring yourself to do it, and you see what is happening and what is not happening in that hallway for as long as it did with the little real-time clock up in the corner of the video, it is mind-blowing. It is breathtaking. It is outrageous in every true sense of that word. And we're saying that, Jesse, and we're agreeing from a distance on that point. And as you're saying, it has to be amplified and magnified many times over inside that small, close-knit community. And I think all we can do collectively is demand accountability and pray for those people because if healing is possible, it's going to be a very thorny, difficult process. On that subject, broadly, quickly, Jesse, there was a White House bill signing earlier this week on legislation that emerged from that massacre. It was bipartisan. There were dozens of Republicans who got on board with it, and there were many others. A majority of congressional Republicans voted no. We had Senator Cornyn on this show this week talking about it. He was the lead sponsor in the Senate. Congressman Gonzalez, who represents Uvalde, he was a yes vote on the Republican side. I broadly overall support it. I have a few questions about it. From your perspective as a center-left Democrat, what do you make of the bill that President Biden signed into law? So as a as a Hillary Democrat, as she said, the core part of progressive is progress and that you never snub your nose at progress. And so that's my feeling about this. It does not have the teeth that I would have liked it to have, um, but it did get Republicans into conversations they had been unwilling to have ever before. And I think that we have to look at it glass half full rather than glass half empty. I thought Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut, obviously this has become the major issue of his career, right? Um, And the work that he did on it, and he speaks the most um, articulately about the importance of compromise when you get the opportunity. And so I'm happy for it. I understand, you know, some Republicans are concerned about how these red flag laws will work and that if people will be denied their constitutional rights to own a firearm, you know, unnecessarily, et cetera, et cetera. Due um, process concerns, sure. Due process. Exactly. Um, I am not that concerned about it. Um, I am concerned that it will not go far enough, but I am happy that we have done something. And I think it's especially meaningful that John Cornyn, um, someone who has been intractable on gun control, was one of the lead sponsors of it. And I know Mitch McConnell gave an interview where he said, essentially, we need to warn the suburbs back and suburban voters care about this. I don't care what the reason is. It is important to have Mitch McConnell's face up on those graphics every time that you show who supported this bill. Um, Because Mitch McConnell is, I think, the most important Republican in politics, I guess, besides Donald Trump. Um, But he, you know, he is the mastermind of 
everything, what's gone on with the courts, et cetera. And I think that his signature, um, proverbial signature, was a huge part of this. Um, so I'm I'm net net happy and relieved. Jesse Tarloff, I want to ask you, as the de facto chief baby correspondent, we joke about that because you have your infinite home, sweet Cleo. We've talked about this issue a couple different times, the baby formula shortage, which is still a thing. I know that it's kind of fallen out of the news cycle in a lot of places. I guess people lost interest, but a lot of mothers and parents certainly have not lost interest. Up on vacation last week, I went on a grocery store run. And they had baby formula locked up behind glass at the front of the store, and those shelves were almost completely bare. I know that New York, where you live, is, I guess, the best state in the country right now in terms of having supply. It's still down from where it typically is, but it's not as bad as other places. But Bloomberg is reporting today, quote, Despite efforts to restart the baby formula plant at the epicenter of the U.S. crisis and millions of bottles of the product being flown in from abroad by the government, shortages are still raging in many states. Nationwide, the latest in-stock figure for baby formula was at 70% for the week ending July 3rd, down from 77% the week ending June the 5th. And that's down from a typical you know, 90-plus percent across the country. And in some of these states, inventory levels are below 60%, even hovering around 50% in Alaska, which is the worst in the country. And I'm just wondering, A, how your experience has changed, if it has, in recent weeks on this issue. And just speaking to this overall concern that is, I guess, kind of still flying underneath the radar in the news media, even though it is still top of mind and very acute for a lot of people with young children all across this country. Yeah, so um, I think New York State is doing better than a lot of places. I use uh, something called Instacart, um, which is an app that I think I think it's in all. I don't want to say all fifty states. I don't know if it's functioning in Alaska, for instance. But basically, it can connect you with stores all over your area, so that you're not relying on, you know, what's in your neighborhood. So I actually have been able to get deliveries from a Key Foods that's in another borough. And they seem to pretty reliably have the formula that Clio takes. Um, so I do that. But the prices hiked up um, like 25%. Not their fault, right? I mean, so I'm not blaming them. And then there are huge delivery fees. I mean, it's, it's become an issue where I would say that most people with means are able to get it. Um, but that we have a huge socioeconomic divide problem, and mm-hmm. there are still a lot of mothers that are turning to milk banks, for instance. Um, you know, a lot of hospitals also, people donate their extra breast milk when women are producing more uh, than they need and are just looking for any way to get their babies fed. Um, so that's still going on. I, In terms of it falling out of the news cycle, like we started talking about it a couple months before the nation did, right, just because. I had a baby. Um, And I really believe that this is allowed to be something that we stop talking about because it's like a mom thing, mostly. I'm not saying dads don't participate. They definitely do. My own husband is fantastic, hands-on, et cetera, et cetera. But most women are just the ones that are in charge of getting the the food for the house, right, or making sure that the babies have what they need. And I I don't think that those stories get amplified in the same way and that the outrage, you know, can I think it's terrible. I think it's terrible. That's why I want to keep talking about it here as long as it's still going on. I saw the headline from Bloomberg. I was like, whoa, this is still a thing. 
and because you know I hadn't really seen too much about it out there, and, and I think your point about inflation is really crucial because this would be an issue and a problem even if we weren't in the middle of terrible inflation because of the shortage. Then you add the cost of everything going up, and it just makes things worse. Right, the whole thing gets more painful for the people who have been desperate and concerned now for many months on this front. And we've talked about some of the reasons why. One of them, I think, is overregulation. And like the fact that baby formula that's perfectly safe in Europe has been illegal to sell in this country, I think, is very odd. And there's a closely related issue that I want to pick your brain on as well. I think this is indefensible government malpractice from the Biden administration. We'll ask Jesse Tarloff about it as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Jessica Tarloff is my guest, and I was talking about government burdensome overregulation that's actively harming the American people. And Jesse, I saw this from the New York Post. Writer Josh Barrow highlighted it. He says, absolute insanity. The Biden administration won't accept a million doses of monkeypox vaccine from Denmark because the FDA failed to do a timely inspection of the plant, even though EU authorities did inspect the plant and approved its product for use in the EU. It seems like the amount of government, quote-unquote, help here and red tape, once again, is harming the public health interests of the American people. And it's like a pattern here. And I think a lot of people are fed up with it. They definitely are. I mean, uh Josh Barrow, who's gay, lives in the city, in New York City, too, has been reporting very closely on this. And every time that Mark Levine, who's our health commissioner, I think it's the formal title, you know, puts out, uh, you know, a tweet or a post that there's vaccine available, there are thousands of men who show up to get it and they don't have enough supply for that. It's a travesty that it's available. It's not like we're taking a vaccine from China here. We're taking it from Denmark, who probably has higher standards for everything, frankly, than we do. Although, and, and the problem here is we're actually not taking it, is the thing. There's a million doses on offing, and it's just sitting there because of our stupid, bureaucratic, creaky process that delays everything and is serving no public good. But it's like all the paperwork, right, all the dotting of I's and crossing of T's in a way that if it's actually serving a real purpose, fine. But if it's just delaying things needlessly, an urgent need for a lot of people, it's just absolutely crazy. And I think maybe a teachable moment for some people who always believe that, you know, more government is the answer and the government's great and they're experts and they know whatever, trust the experts. Well, that's not necessarily always the case. Jesse, we've got to go. I've already run we always do appreciate your time here. Our colleague here at Fox News, she'll be on The Five tonight, Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, and then all the mother and romance things here as well. Jesse, always enjoy it. Yeah, thanks so much, Guy. Me too. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Kicking off the Wednesday happy hour with all of you here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. 
And the final hour, 5 to 6, is the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious. Our friends over there are expanding, and it's catching fire. I mean, people love the Finnish Long Drink, including yours truly. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. As I said, it's now available in a lot more places, and that list is growing. TheLongDrink.com. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand, plus all sorts of other items and goodies and resources related to this program. GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter for Axios. That's the new title, the new gig. Also a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, welcome back. Good to have you. Hey, Guy. Good to be back on the show. I would like to start with your piece at Axios about the dramatic changes, the shifts in coalitions. I know that there were theories about American politics looking into the future and saying, well, the coalition of the ascendant under Barack Obama looks like this. You look at demographics, that means that Democrats are going to become increasingly dominant and at some point unbeatable nationally because demographics is destiny and this is what their coalition looks like, this is what the Republican Party looks like, and that's sort of the way things go. Then a funny thing happened, as it so often does. Events have intervened, things have changed, and some of the hard and fast rules don't look quite so hard and fast anymore. So talk about what you are seeing. It's not exactly novel in the sense that you've discovered something that no one else has ever been talking about in the last couple months or couple years, but you're trying to really distill down how seismic some of these changes already have been and those implications now looking forward on American politics in the foreseeable future. What are some of the big takeaways? Yeah, well, the biggest takeaway, uh, and, and I was reporting from this New York Times poll that we've been talking about for, for the last couple of days, but the biggest takeaway is that Democrats now have a bigger advantage with white college graduates than they do with non-white voters, many of them working class, which was the traditional base of the Democratic Party. So you really are seeing uh, the Republicans, and you see this specifically with Hispanic voters, but it's, it's also with, with other uh, groups as well, they're making tremendous inroads. Guy, we've talked about the, the Texas congressional races, the, the, the Rio Grande Valley, but we're, we're seeing uh, poll after poll showing Republicans neck and neck with Democrats among Hispanic voters across the country. And we're seeing like candidates. Like usually, I, I used to always write columns and, and stories many, for many years that showed how, how, how challenging it was for Republicans to recruit diverse candidates from all kinds of backgrounds, racially, uh, class-wise as well. This year, they have a, one of the most diverse recruiting classes in history. You have, uh, you know, <laughs> candidates from all, all kinds of professional backgrounds running for office. So you're seeing this shift where the Democratic Party was the, uh, traditionally the party of the working class. The Republican Party was the party of big business. We're seeing a, a kind of like a Freaky Friday shift where Republicans are now doing much, much better with working class voters of all colors. And Democrats have become sort of the party of the elite, the, the upscale voters in the suburbs in particular. Um, and, you know, the, 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 there's advantages and disadvantages to that trade-off. Uh, but, but one of the challenges for Democrats is that the only group that they're really doing well with are really like white college-educated voters and particularly women. And it's made it really challenging to, for them to expand that coalition, especially with the economy doing so poorly, with inflation being such a big issue. Well, it's like social liberals, social progressives, 
and college-educated, heavily white people. I mean, that also sounds a lot like, and we were talking about this yesterday with Ari Fleischer, about his new book that's out, that sounds very similar to the profile, if you will, of the average D.C. New York journalist or the dominant profile of a newsroom in the news media. And that can sort of create a very insular community where it's people who think like one another, who have similar backgrounds and experiences to one another, all listening in this echo chamber to what they themselves are all saying when there's a big, vast world out there that disagrees with them on all sorts of issues, cultural and otherwise. And I think that it's not really a media commentary that you've offered in Axios in this piece, but I think that there's something to be said there to look at what the Democrats are becoming as a party and to look at what I view as their allies in the media, sort of reflecting that in a lot of ways. I just wonder if the polarization that has characterized American politics might deepen even as some of these cross currents are surprising people in ways that the smart set was not predicting even a few years ago. Well, look, um, one of the findings from the New York Times poll was that most voters rank the economy as the top issue. They're having trouble making ends meet. They're, they're looking at the rising gas prices, the short short shelves, not, not all the goods being stocked at grocery stores, and it's affecting them on a day to day basis. You know, when you're when you have enough money, when you're when you're upscale, you have that 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 privilege of not having to worry about you know paying bills on a day to day basis and, and making ends meet. You're more worried about other issues, and the poll found that gun control and abortion rights were the top issues among that were among the top issues among that 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 more upscale set, and that they favor Democrats significantly right now on, on the battle for Congress. So, like that that itself is, I think that that speaks to what you're talking about, guy. That you know the economy is the number one, number two, number three issue for a vast majority of voters of, of all backgrounds of all races. Among the, the college-educated, uh, upscale suburban voters, gun control and abortion and some of the cultural liberal issues rank a lot higher. And you know the risk for Democrats is if you're running a statewide Senate campaign and you're running a lot of ads, say, on, on Roe v. Wade or abortion rights, that could come across as disconnected from the, the interests of the majority of voters in that state, even if it's a swing state. And I think abortion was the top issue for 5% of voters in one of these recent polls right around there when there are huge economic concerns, keeping people at night, roiling businesses and families all across the country. I know the media loves to talk about guns and abortion. They have a very strong point of view, an activist point of view on those issues, which aligns with this sort of boutique group of elites that you're talking about that increasingly represents the Democratic base, but they might be deeply out of touch, not necessarily on those issues alone. Those are divisive unto themselves, but just in terms of priorities. And on that point, Josh, and since we're talking about the New York Times poll that has gotten so much attention, there was a new tranche of data from that same poll out today that has, despite President Biden at just 33 percent approval, overall, 60% disapproval, and just a raft of terrible data for him and the Democrats in general in that survey, the so-called generic congressional ballot is virtually tied. It has the Democrats at 41%, the Republicans at 40%. The thing that jumps out about that, at least to me, Josh, is, okay, you see some people crowing on the left, look, the Democrats have made gains or they're now up one on the generic ballot. Maybe, but 
you're at almost, what, 20% undecided or not responding. That's an awful lot of people. 41 to 40 is a very low number between those two parties. And you've got to think, based on Biden's numbers and the right track, wrong track, and everything else that we've broken down ad nauseum from that poll, a lot of those people who aren't decided yet or aren't saying which way they'll swing, you'd have to imagine that a very significant percentage, likely a majority, maybe a large majority of that group would be inclined in an environment like this, in a cycle like this, to go against the ruling party. Am I off or does that sound right to you? Well, look, I think just being up by one point, as the Democrats are on that generic ballot, is not good. In fact, in 2010, they, they were up by more than one point in a lot of polls around this time, and they lost 63 House seats. So usually Democrats have a natural advantage on the generic ballot questions. Like being tied statistically is not good for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the, the, the larger story and maybe a small concern for Republicans is that even though Joe Biden's numbers are really bad, historically bad. Uh, there are voters that he's losing his base, right? They're Democrats that don't like what Biden's doing, and they still may show up to the polls to vote for, for, for congressional Democrats. So he, he's done so poorly now that even the base is, 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 has abandoned him in, in, in some cases. And maybe they don't show up to the polls in the midterms, and that's not good news for Democrats, but maybe they do show up and they're just not excited about Biden, but they will vote for, for, for Democrats running for Senate and House. Um, I, so I think the number, the Democratic number, the floor is closer to like 40. Uh, and, and, and I think that this is where candidate quality comes in. You know, I think if Democrats get closer to the low mid 40s and, you know, they have some Republican challengers and some key races that may not be ready for prime time. That's where you might see Democrats being able to overperform the, the, the national environment. But, you know, there are a lot of wishes and hopes right now when Democrats are looking at the polling data because none of it is good. They're just trying to find some, some green shoots in what is some pretty, pretty overall dismal data for, for the yeah, party. And, and typically, unless I'm mistaken, but based on following politics for a number of years, often when you've got a climate like this, especially historically where it's the first midterm election cycle in a new presidency – tends to go against the party in power. Democrats have full control of Washington. People have not been this upset with the direction of the country in a very long time. When you have a lot of the late deciders or the current undecided folks at least telling pollsters they're not sure yet, that group tends to break away from the party in power, away from the president's party, especially when the president is grappling with the horrible numbers that this president is. There could be some of those people that, you're right, are Democrats who are on the left and are upset, disillusioned, dissatisfied, but will begrudgingly show up and grit their teeth and vote anyway because they hate the Republicans more. But if you are an undecided sort of swing independent voter, a whole lot of those people who are telling pollsters right now, I'm not sure, those are Biden disapprovers and those are wrong track voters. And that cannot bode well for the party that controls the federal government, right? It seems like kind of politics 101. Yeah, and and Obama at this time, when he lost the House, lost 63 seats, had an approval rating around 45 46%. Biden's is 43%. Sorry, 33% in the Times poll. So even if you give him some of those, he's still well below where Obama was in what was a brutal year for Democrats. A decade ago. So this is not – these numbers are bad for Democrats. It's only a question of like are we looking at – I think the bigger question is 
is the Senate salvageable for Democrats? The House looks looks all but gone. Can can the Democrats exploit certain candidacies in, in certain races, especially for the Senate, to you know either save the majority or hold down their losses? But the the, the, the big big story is what you said, Guy. That the mood is pessimistic. People don't trust Biden. They don't trust the governing party. They they see the state of the economy. They're very disillusioned. And they're you're right. They're going to more likely take it out on the party in power. Oh, and let me just look at the inflation numbers today that we opened with on the show. It's the number one story in America. And the White House can say, well, it's sort of out of date and it's going to get better. And I just don't really know if they have any credibility left over there at the White House because they've been telling people not to really worry too much about this for a year. Then they started blaming it on everyone else. Now the number has gotten worse than anyone even expected for this month amid the teeth of this painful inflationary period. And, you know, they're out there just trotting people out to kind of with eyes glazed over put whatever they can out there into the spinosphere and i just don't think it really connects with people where they are where they're living what they're experiencing and i think that's a huge disconnect that you know whether you want to look at terrible news cycles because of news events or the controversy at the supreme court or whatever ultimately with inflation where it is right now and no real signs of easing significantly anytime soon, it's just an all-engulfing issue, is it not? The White House spin today, Guy, was that you shouldn't really put much weight into the numbers because gas prices have gone down in the last few weeks, and it doesn't account for that. Never mind the fact that the quarter CPI, the core kind of inflation index, which excludes gas prices, excludes energy, was up at a historic rate as well. There's a certain credibility gap guy that this White House has, and I don't understand their communications strategy. A good communicator, a good partisan communicator, acknowledges your weaknesses, acknowledges that this is a tough time, and then pivots to making an argument on what you're going to do or how you're going to make things better. But, but you don't deny reality. You don't deny the data. And so often you see this White House with their head in the clouds denying what's in their own administration's economic reports, with the own, the own reality of what's happening with inflation on a day-to-day basis. And that just lose, that, that, that that's like you know someone, uh, a doctor telling a patient you're, you're not sick when they're clearly sick. It, it's, it, it's just a, a disconnect from, from the needs and, and, and aspirations of where the American yep. public is right now. And, and, it's, and a, that it's, a, patient, it's political malpractice. Yeah. And that patient might go get a second opinion? from another doctor, and I think that voter might go get a second option with the other party. And that's what Republicans are certainly banking on and expecting this November. And, Josh, you said that you can't really understand the White House strategy when it comes to their messaging. I'm not sure they do on a pretty regular basis. That's how it seems, like very incoherent and haphazard, and it certainly isn't helping their electoral fate right now as the numbers are bearing out in pretty stark relief. Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios now and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, as always, thanks very much. Thanks, Guy. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. In that last segment, we were just talking with Josh Kay about some polling in the New York Times survey. And since we're on the subject of polling, I'd like to just walk through a little journey with you featuring the Biden administration and their relationship with polling. So Biden was asked by a reporter 
about the recent survey showing that two-thirds nearly of Democrats don't want him to run again for president. They want someone new in 2024. He was asked about that, and he got a little bit grumpy about it in Cut 11. Mr. President, what's your message to Democrats who don't want you to run again? They want me to run. Two-thirds say they Read don't. Read the polls. Read the polls, Jack. You guys are all the same. That poll showed that 92% of Democrats, if I ran, would vote for me. A majority of Democrats say they don't want you to run again in no, 2024. 92% said if I did, they'd vote for me. Read the poll, Jack. You guys are all the same. Not sure if the reporter's name is Jack or if that's just a nickname. At least he didn't call him pal or bell. Remember this one from last year, Cut 24? Now we look at 2022. I want to tell my Republican friends, get ready, pal. You're going to enter a problem. Get ready, pal. You're going to in a problem or whatever he said. This version is read the polls, Jack. Well, the poll specifically says 64 percent of Democrats don't want him to run again. His response to that is read the polls, which he clearly has. He was very familiar with one particular data point from that poll, which is odd because Joe Biden earlier this year said this in cut 12. How do you plan to win back moderates and independents who cast a ballot for you in 2020, but polls indicate aren't happy with the way you're doing your job now? I don't believe the polls. I don't believe the polls. And then just this week, his spokeswoman said this, cut 13. We're not going to pay attention to to polls. That's not what we're going to do here. What we're going to focus on is uh, delivering for the American people. I don't believe the polls. We're not going to pay attention to polls. And then read the polls, Jack. Makes sense to me. It's just about as coherent as everything else about this administration. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, it is the happy hour. A little bit earlier on, we caught up with former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, who's with a new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism. We talked about that, but also a lot of other subjects as well. Heading into the midterms and looking ahead to 2024, here are a few of Speaker Gingrich's insights. The Biden people are downplaying that, but they, of course, downplayed inflation as well. So their credibility is is sort of shot on some of these issues, Mr. Speaker. And a lot of this can be sort of traced back to some of the big government policies that you've written about in the book. Just give our audience an overview, a little preview of defeating big government socialism. Well, my concern was that we would win an election just based on performance because they're doing so badly, but that we would not drive home the argument that, in fact, the reason their performance is so bad is their policies, their ideas, and their philosophy are so destructive. Uh, The fact is the stuff they believe in does not work. Uh, Ronald Reagan once said that uh, he wasn't frightened of what liberals did not know. He was frightened of what they knew that just wasn't true. And I think, uh, you know, we, we saw Jimmy Carter bring massive inflation. Here we are back at the same stand with Joe Biden bringing massive inflation. We've seen Democratic policies that are anti-oil and anti-gas. That was true under Carter. It's true under Obama. It's true under Biden. Well, guess what? Uh, You know, an American president who favors uh, Venezuela over Texas, Saudi Arabia over North Dakota, and Iran over Pennsylvania as sources of energy— I mean, you have to wonder where their heads are at, 
or what planet they're on. And yet that's exactly the kind of thing we're getting. So my point in writing Defeating Big Government Socialism was to make the case that, that we who believe in America and in America's future, we have to win the argument that these people aren't just incompetent. What they believe cannot possibly work. And we have real proof uh, that it can be done because in 1975, Prime Minister, then opposition leader, Margaret Thatcher, uh, set out to destroy socialism as an acceptable alternative. And she was so successful at winning the argument that uh, for the last 40 years, uh, no left-wing leader of the Labor Party has been elected prime minister, not one, because it became unacceptable. And I think we have an opportunity to take the failures of the Democratic Congress and the Democratic president and drive home that, that these are fundamental failures of values, of philosophy, and of belief, and that anybody who shares these should not be allowed in power. And if we win the argument correctly, and we're certainly going to have enough pain uh, to have people paying attention, mm -hmm. uh, I think that this could last for several generations. My full interview with Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, the entire show is there every day on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Apparently, it was Amazon Prime Day. Was it yesterday? Was it this week at some point? I did not even hear about it, so I did not take advantage. But did anyone else? There's a rumor that at least one member of the team did. We will ask her about that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. It is the home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening every weekday, 3 to 6. If you missed any of today's program, you missed a lot. It's always available in its entirety, no charge to you on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always like to remind you of that. Well, on the planning call for the show today, Amazon Prime Day came up, and I had not even heard about it. For some reason, I thought that was sometime around the holidays, like Black Friday range. I guess I totally misunderstood that, or maybe there are multiple Amazon Prime Days annually. I don't know. Christine, when was Amazon Prime Day? Uh, Amazon Prime Day is still going on, guys, so you can still benefit from all the deals out there, but it was yesterday and today. And people are buying for the holidays. We have 165 days until Christmas, so... This is kind of like holiday shopping for people like myself. 165 days away. Do you have a giant tearaway calendar at the house? Countdown to Christmas. And then you have little markings along the way of when you have to put up different decorations. So do you have your, I don't know, Halloween decorations up yet at your house? I, I do not. Um, it's July, so it's still like the American themed, you know, flags oh, right. it's, and no, it's pumpkin. It's pumpkin spice season. Not is what yet. It is. August, the beginning of August is when Ugh. the PSLs come out. Yeah, we'll, we'll fight about that in a little bit. I'm just curious, before we get back to you, because obviously some shopping has been done in your household, if anyone else on the team has taken advantage of Amazon Prime Day, as you have gathered from what I've been saying here, I didn't know it was happening. I don't plan on spending anything today, so I'm out. Quiet, Wyatt, you don't really strike me as an impulse online buyer or shopper, although maybe you see a very handsome 
Wall Street Journal monogrammed cardigan or something and you can't resist, have you made any purchases online in the last day or two? No, not on Amazon, no. Oh, well, that hang on, there was a caveat there. No, have I, you gone I, non Amazon? I'll I'll specify no. I, I did buy books on Amazon, but not during the prime day, so so no. Okay. Dan, in your household, anything happening? Um, I did not myself, but I got home yesterday and my girlfriend had a very guilty look on her face when I walked in and she's like, I kind of bought a lot and maybe went a little overboard. So yeah, there was some shopping in my house. Are there returns available for Amazon Prime Day or are yeah. all sales final? <laughs> there will be returns because I was like, what did you buy anyways? And so she's like, I don't need half this stuff, so I'll probably return it. Okay. I I do not understand that mentality. I know that it's very common. Nor do I. I know many people are listening right now being like, oh, yeah, that's what I do. You buy a ton of stuff. You don't need all of it. You end up returning a lot of it. It's such a hassle. So much of that is a hassle. Why? All right, Christine. Well, What damage on. have you done? So, okay, I have a lot to um, talk about, so let me try to organize this. So I would like to talk about returns because I have thoughts on that. Do you want me to tell you what I actually bought, what's in the cart, what was in the cart and has been deleted and what was in the cart deleted and put back in for possibly a fight tonight with Bobby? Well, I would just say the cart to me is kind of a wish list, right? You have not actually pulled the trigger on anything that's simply sitting in the cart. So I am more interested in what you have actually bought and then maybe this looming battle with your husband. Okay, well, first let me just talk about returns. Um, I am the queen of buying and returning later. I actually have a return, like, bag like a tote in my closet and sometimes it can go up to like five hundred dollars in there that needs to be returned why um i need to think about things um i know you think i'm just impulsive but i'm impulsive wouldn't you do the thinking before the buying no no do you not know how women shop no okay so you're not so see if you would go shopping with me like a best no. friend does, go to the mall, you would understand. Like, I will go find a pair of jeans for like 150 bucks that I didn't even know I wanted or needed, but then all of a sudden I absolutely needed it. So then I bring it home and I sit on it. Sometimes I put my new purchases under the bed and let them sit there for a little bit. Then I'll take them out and like put it in the closet and see if it feels good in the closet. And usually I have 30 to 60 days to, you know, think about it a little more and then I return. If it feels good in the closet? Yeah. What are you talking about? Like if it should be no, – don't, don't shake your head at me, Dan. If it feels like it should be in my closet and it's something that I'm going to wear. I don't just buy things and then just pull the tags off and wear it, do you? Yes. Because huh. I try them on first and I don't buy the things on the Internet unless I know a specific item – with a size that I know for sure fits me, I do not buy clothing items on the internet. So I, I go to an actual, sorry. I go to an actual brick and mortar location mm-hmm. to try things on. I look at the mirror, I decide if that works, and then I make my decision. And once the decision is made, barring something really faulty or wrong with it, I keep it and I do not return things. That is, to me, a very straightforward, logical way to make this type of choice. And to make purchases or not. I don't care how something looks hanging in a closet. Your life is so simple. I'm not like, ooh, I really like that blazer, but it kind of harshes the vibe here in the closet. Got to send it back. (laughs) What? 
I, I, it makes perfect sense to me. Also, I like to go out of my comfort. I have like a, a style that usually is just the same stuff. And sometimes I think, let me go out of the box and like, oh, let's try boho, like, you know, or let's try, you know, leather. And it always looks ridiculous. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of returns, but I guess you and I are not on the same page with that. So Do we can, you? We can move on. Do you get in scenarios, though, where you want to return something and then you get a hassle and it becomes a huge pain in the neck to complete the transaction and get your money back? Actually, why, why would you like to tell the story? Because he was along the ride with me at J. Crew for this one. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah. So I went I went with Christine to J. Crew in uh, in uh, somewhere in New York and. The, I guess it was over the limit of time that you could return, and so the lady wouldn't give the money back to Christine's credit card. It had to go back to a store credit, and so there was a little disagreement there. I can I ask you? Can I ask you, Wyatt, why you were on this errand with producer Christine? Why you allowed yourself to be roped into that? I think this was one of the times I was up in New York and we were in between our show and Gutfeld taping. And so we went in between then. So I, I actually I blame dr- you did guys. Did she drug you? Did she drug you like, <laughs> oh, does this smell like chloroform? Then all of a sudden you wake up in a J. Crew. No, and I she's in a screaming to... match with the manager. I rarely get to walk around the streets of New York. So I was like, yeah, why not? And it was it was cool. It was a it was a fun experience. Hmm. All right, Christine. So and there's by- one example of this whole approach, I think, being unwise. But, you know, you do you. It's your money. It's your life. What have you purchased on Amazon Prime Days? Because I'm not going to call it Amazon Prime Day if you said it's still going on. Right. It's Days. What are the purchases briefly? And what's this mystery item that might cause a bit of a flap? Okay. First, I bought a lip sleeping mask. Have you ever heard of that? Nope. So it's Mm-mm. something that you literally put on your lips overnight, and it's supposed to be life-changing. I've never had it before, and I was excited, so I put that in there. I bought that. I bought. Wait, stop right there. Mm-hmm. You put something on your lips while you sleep, and it changes your life? Yeah, it's supposed to hydrate and nourish. Okay. All right. Very How popular. much was that? So that was originally $25.99, and I got it for 16 Not bad. Is it a one-time use product? Do you like have to fill it with something? No, it looks like a lip balm. I, I I've never had it before. I just saw on you know one of those TikToks. This is like a must buy. Oh, a TikTok decision. Okay, good, good. All right, next. Um, I bought a new beach bag because I mean, how many? You can't have enough beach bags. I I believe. I bought uh, sandals. I bought another pair of heels, and then ready for this. <laughs> mm, I'm not sure. I bought a vacuum. Stop. I did. You did not. <laughs> I did. I bought a new... Another vacuum cleaner? Yeah, this is a can. Is this, like, is this like the third one you've bought since you've been my producer, which has not been that long? The show launched with Marie in, what, 2018? And then we've been solo since 2019, just the Guy Benson show? It's been a good run so far and hopefully many years to come, but it is not that old of a show... I feel like you buy a vacuum cleaner like the average person maybe once or twice in their lifetime. And this might be your third vacuum cleaner purchase since we have worked together. Does that sound right or am I misremembering? Um, You're a little off, actually. This is the third vacuum I bought since 2020. 
You and I started Stop. working together in 2018. Why? I don't know. I And mind you, I live in an apartment. It's not that big. Well, you don't even have a house anymore. Nope. How many vacuum cleaners do you currently have physically in your apartment? So when the new Bissell Zing comes, it will be four. Four? <laughs> Is it like, do you... I, I ask this with with affection. What the hell is wrong with you? I mean... On this. Um, let's just limit it to this issue, vacuum cleaners. Because you had the huge, what was the Dyson saga. I remember that. I still have it. Still have it, even though it doesn't work or doesn't work to your satisfaction, but you still have it? Yeah, I don't love it. It works. Bobby fixed it. We had to, like, call Dyson, yada, yada. It's okay. I, it's not is my Is Bobby favorite. aware that you have purchased another vacuum cleaner? No. What do you think I'm crazy? Yes. So what I'm yes. thinking is there I have a shark that I'm thinking of just like kind of switching out for the the new Bissell Zing. The problem is the shark is a is shark that's a brand? Yeah, and the shark is an upright and the Bissell Zing is a canister, so he's obviously gonna know the difference. Where do you keep these things? An apartment isn't that big. Do you have an extra bedroom only for your vacuum cleaners? <laughs> no. Are you gonna tell it's like Megan, sorry, mommy, sorry, but you can't have a bed anymore. Because mommy needs that space for a seventh vacuum cleaner. Okay, sweetie? I just, you know, we have a lot of closets and storage. And I, like I said, I'm going to get rid. I have Aren't to those get... overflowing with your seasonal swag and house decorations that Oh, are I didn't prematurely... tell you. I brought all my seasonal swag to um, Judgy Joyce's attic. She's not happy. Oh, yeah. I'm sure she's thrilled. I cannot. So this was not the item that's sitting in the shopping cart virtually. You actually have the vacuum cleaner on its way paid mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. yeah i don't I don't, I don't even oh we also have one of those vacuums like uh, i named him wally you like hit a button and he like just goes on his own to you know oh, vacuum. Yeah, like a, a roomba type situation but yeah we just call him wally does that count in the four that you currently have yes yes okay so what's the controversial item so I need new AirBuds, and I know Bobby's not going to go for this because this would be my fourth pair of the AirPods. So I have a feeling. Um, fourth. I keep losing them. They're, they're, they're little things. They're tricky. I feel like you have given up your AirPod privileges, right? You're like a small child who's like, okay, you can have these, but they're very important and they're expensive. You have to prove that you can take care of them. We're like, yes, let's see if you can keep this guinea pig alive before we buy you a dog. And you're on, what, three or four dead guinea pigs at this point. Yeah, pretty much. I don't know if you've talked to Bobby, but that's exactly what not. he said. He said, you, you, you're not responsible. Oh, and I, I also asked for a pair of, like, really expensive sunglasses for my birthday. And he's like, you're out of your mind. You lose sunglasses on the daily. He's like, no way. Hmm. Well, I will continue to lift Bobby up in my thoughts and prayers on a daily basis because it sounds like he's got a lot to deal with, especially around Amazon Prime Days. And then I heard another rumor about another scheme that you've got cooking that maybe we'll get to on another home stretch in the days to come. But happy Amazon Prime Days, everyone. I would like you to think about the approaches to spending money that you've heard modeled here today on the program, the Benson approach, the cookie approach. And you can just maybe think about or even send me a note or tweet at Christine at Cookies Jar 1988. By the way, Christine, did you tweet the video from the Backstreet Boy? I wasn't sure if you wanted me to. Can I? Oh, yeah, I think you absolutely should. Well, then that's happening tonight.
There you go. At CookiesJar1988, you can send her your thoughts. You can send me your thoughts on Instagram or Twitter, at Guy P. Benson. And we'll just leave it at that. We'll let the people decide who is the rational, sensible, responsible actor in this tandem. Got to run. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you then. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.